Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And welcome back to the Roker Report podcast. We're on episode 45 in championship match number 10. We drew two to out last time against Preston. And, well, it wasn't very good. So we'll get straight into it. Tom, what did you think? Yeah, it was a tricky one, mate. It's like one of those moments where you've got to look from within the situation and without. And the beginning of the season, if somebody told us we we're going to be second bottom after 10 games drawn 2-2 against bloody Preston, I'd have been absolutely gutted. But considering we've been absolutely thrashed and I think we've conceded something like 19 goals in our last eight games, you've got to be like, a, I don't know, breathe a sigh of relief almost that we didn't collapse, we didn't throw the game away. We actually managed to bag two goals that were actually pretty decent in all honesty. And there was some like sparklings there, like Duncan Watmore coming on and creating things on the pitch, which was great to see. And the other two young lads in Gooch and uh, Honeyman making things happen. That was, was something positive to take away from the game. But in general, coming away with a point in the position we're in, I think we still have to be a little bit little bit upset and a little bit worried, really. I mean, yeah, I completely agree with him for what that's worth. Um, upset? I, I think I'm past upset at the moment, to be honest with you. Um, I remember we were speaking a lot about apathy um, in the last, well, basically in the, in, in the last year or so, we've been talking about apathy. I think it's really, it really sank in for me before the game we played on Saturday that I was feeling, I think I said it as well, I'm feeling proper apathetic about it. Not so much angry anymore, not so much disappointed, just just generally, like it's it's hard because you, you keep investing all of your emotions into something like this. A lot of people sit there and say, well, people who aren't football fans will say, well, it's just a game, you know, what you're worried about. But in actuality, when you're really involved... In it when when it's something that you I mean particularly us at Rogue Report we we spend a lot of our time most of our spare time actually writing about Sunderland you know what I mean talking about Sunderland I mean Gav put it well the other day he just said like literally all of his spare time goes into it obviously he runs the site all of his spare time goes into it so you you're involved in every little facet of the game of the club and things like that and even when you're not involved as in having real actual knowledge like obviously there's a lot of things we don't know we never will know because we're just fans but even the speculation you know it's something that that you you can't avoid and with that in mind it it takes away from the the old anticipation slash dread 
that you used to get or I used to get from the games. I, I had it for the start of this season because it's a it's a, a novelty, you know, coming down at the championship. That's a novelty now. And I thought, oh yeah, we're going to see a bit more, uh, a bit more gritty football, something a bit more exciting. You know what I mean? Because we've been dealing with a lot of well, a lot of dull crap basically for a long time now. So I was hoping when we when we came into this, we were we were expecting some hard fights and and some nasty challenges and some unbelievable fucking calls from the ref and stuff like that. And I mean, yeah, there was some, uh, there were some pretty nasty challenges in that game. There were some unbelievable calls from the ref. I wouldn't say that any of it really went our way though. So for me, I'm, I don't know, even getting the point, I, I know the point's good. I know we need every point we can get. That goes without saying, but it, it, it's got all kinds of connotations with it. And yeah, in general, I would say, I just feel, I just feel apathetic. That's the best way to sign up. And for those that are a bit confused about the uh, the format of the podcast today, um, I'm James Copley. I'm hosting. Uh, I'm standing for Demo, who was actually on the podcast today, uh, because Ooh. his internet has just died, really. So he's relying on his 4G, so he couldn't host today. But thanks for coming on, Demo. That's all right. That's how professional I am. I'm so professional that my internet has cut out. My horrible, tacky internet has cut out. <laughs> and it's been and it's been a very professional start of the podcast. It has been, hasn't it? Yeah. It's it's been you're doing well, though. You're doing well. So <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, James, what did you make of the uh, the pressing game, Med? Well, it was all right. Um, I think there seemed to be a lot of negativity around afterwards when I actually thought we played quite well. I, I thought, other than a 10-minute spell that Preston had where they, they didn't, genuinely did push us further back and put a bit of pressure on us, I, I thought we were the better side. Um, I thought Catamol had a, had a much better game. I thought Ndong had so much more energy than Gibson did in the, uh, you know, in the week. Um, I thought what more coming off the bench was absolutely superb. You saw just the, the havoc that he caused with his movement and his just raw pace getting in behind him and he looked knackered after about 15 minutes, but that's to be expected. Um, I mean, the referee was absolutely abysmal. And on another day, we'd have won that game. You know, there was three penalty shouts. You know, a couple of them were pretty clear-cut in the second half when that goalkeeper, when the keeper not only wipes Watmore out, but clearly handballs. Uh, and, you know, it goes out and gives a throw-in. And you think, what the bloody hell's going on here? Um but overall, I, I genuinely did think we were all right. I thought we looked more organised with, with John O'Shea coming back. Um, Lamy, you know, Lamin Kone has been so shit, you know, this season. And not having that, his kind of stinking attitude on the pitch, I think actually made a big difference. You know, John O'Shea was organised and he kept people, you know, quite close. Um, if, you, if you look at Preston's goals, I mean... Obviously, the first one's an own goal. It's a, it's a cracking ball, and I'm not sure what James Vaughan's trying to do with it. And their, and their second was just a real piece of quality and probably the best piece of quality the entire 90 minutes. Um, but just to touch on the negativity that seemed to erupt on social media afterwards, I didn't really understand it. You know, people saying that... I know Simon Grace has made a lot of, a lot of mistakes, you know, in his short tenure here so far. You know, he... he he has been negative and the substitutions have left a lot to be desired at times, but I don't think he was necessarily to blame for us not getting three points at the weekend. You know, I think other than that 10, 15 minute spell that Preston had that forced us back, I don't really think they, they threatened too much. I don't think he did really did anything to, to invite pressure onto us. And as I said previously, I think if it hadn't been for 
some genuinely abysmal refereeing decisions. You know, I, I think we'd have come away with the three points. Um, you know, it's just obviously frustrating, but um, I'm tending to look at it on a more positive side because I think if I continue to be as negative as we have been, I might kill myself. So, you know, it can't, it's got to get better. Yeah, I mean, for me, after the game, I, I was kind of in the more negative camp. I think many Sunderland fans that express notions of positivity during the 2-2 draw, um, it's kind of like a, a product of the appalling results fans have had to suffer in recent times. And I think Grayson made mistakes in this game as well. And we'll, we'll get on to it a bit later. But Endong and Catamol in the midfield too again, although it was another change formation with a 4-4-2. Catamol had a, a semi a semi-decent performance. He was improved a little bit, but there was still he was still at fault for the second goal, really. And I don't think I think we have a tendency with Catamol to well, as Sunderland fans actually, to value hard work and grit and determination. I think we have a tendency to overlook the technical aspects of the game, and I think Catamol lacks in this sometimes. But we'll get on to that a bit later. Um, I want to move the debate on to John O'Shea. He came into the defence and some have said that Sunderland looked a bit better, yet we still conceded two goals against Preston. What do you make of it, Tom? What do you think O'Shea brought to the side or didn't bring to the side? John O'Shea is obviously, it's an interesting one. He did undoubtedly bring in some some sort of much-needed cohesiveness to the defence, but like Jim alluded to, I don't know whether that's partly down to just Lamina Kone being a, a disruptive influence and we could have essentially put anybody in there and they would have they would have made an improvement on what we've seen in recent weeks. That being said, obviously, you know, he's got a wealth of experience under his belt. Um, the defence did look a lot more settled with him. I think it's right to point out, though, James, mate, that we conceded two goals in two minutes and he was on the pitch, so that we still have this sort of self-destructive tendency Going forward, he's not the solution. Obviously, he's getting on. He's he's not going to be able to. He's not going to be able to play every game, and that's going to be a real, a real difficulty for for Grayson to overcome. Because now we need to figure out, uh, you know, when we get back into the swing of things, just just what we're going to do. Are we going to keep playing John O'Shea until he burns out? Do we bring Kone back into the fold? What do we do? It's it's tricky. Yeah, I suppose really, I leave it on the note that we have the international break to mull things over, which. It's quite fortunate for us. Um, but he was, John O'Shea in general was good yesterday. Marshalled the defence well. My worry is just that it's another short-term solution to um, a long-term issue. I agree there. I agree with a couple of points you said. Um, apart from the one about the international break, because famously on here we talk about, will we have time? Will something happen during the international break? And it rarely does. But we'll see, I suppose. There's always that. I mean, when it comes to John O'Shea, I agree. Absolutely, he should not be considered the way forward. Um, he did have a, a decent game, uh, certainly compared to his more recent performances. He had a decent game against them, against Preston. Um, and as you say, marshaled the defence well. Uh, obviously, he dropped Kone for that. That was uh, It's an interesting choice, but one that perhaps had to be made. Um, but yeah, specifically about John O'Shea, I mean, it's it's indicative of our, of our scenario, of our situation, even re-signing John O'Shea. The interesting thing about re-signing John O'Shea is when we did it, it was met mostly by what you're doing that for. That wasn't the sort of statement that we wanted the club to make. Um, we look at him now, if, for example, we hadn't had John O'Shea, if we, if we didn't have this relationship with John O'Shea, if he'd had the same sort of career that he's had with us at a different club and we'd actually brought him in in the transfer window, I think we'd have, a lot of fans would have celebrated it um, as, a, as, a, as a good signing. 
you know, or actually, yeah, 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 pretty much. A lot of fans would have said, well, he, he, this is the sort of player you need. You need someone with, with a cool head, someone with leadership and charisma. Um, but in truth, that's something that John O'Shea has been dining out on for a long time, his, his, his leadership and his charisma. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether I believe in his charisma. I'm not entirely sure whether I believe in his ability and his leadership on and off the pitch because he's been there for some time um, and we've had all of these problems for some time. So, I mean, it's not obviously it wouldn't be fair to blame all of these problems on John O'Shea and it wouldn't be fair to say that the fact that he hasn't completely solved them by himself um, is, a, it, it is something that should stand against him. But in truth, if he's the sort of player who, and let's face it, he is at Sunderland, who the club will turn to and say, oh, look, everything else is failing. Get John O'Shea in there. Or, oh, look, the defence needs marshalling. Get John O'Shea in there. Oh, look, we're defending a lead. We need this. Get John O'Shea in there. Even when we're not defending a lead, as we've seen, John O'Shea, John O'Shea, John O'Shea. And that in itself is just depressing, isn't it? That, that in itself shows just how poorly prepared we were for this scenario of being injury-ridden and really in the gutter, essentially, when it comes to our performances and any likelihood of us clawing our way back up is really slim when the sort of people that you're going to and that you can only go to now because the transfer window's closed are John O'Shea. That's that's my two cents on it. I don't think he's the... Uh, like Tom said, he, he, he's absolutely by no means what we should have for the future. He's not what we need going forward and the tragic thing is there's nothing we can do about that now there was something we could have done about it in the transfer window but there isn't now so yeah I have very mixed feelings on John O'Shea I think and not to sound like a negative Nelly all of the time but he is 36 I remember a period under Allardyce as well where we'd be either defending a lead or defending a draw and Allardyce would infuriatingly bring John O'Shea on and we would concede within about 30 seconds. James, do you think John O'Shea is part of the solution or is he part of a long-term problem? It's a tough one, really, because whilst I do think he played really well at the weekend, I do understand people's points on whether, you know, he certainly isn't the future. Um, you know, as Tom said, you, you couldn't rely on him to play every week. You certainly, certainly couldn't do that. But he is the kind of player we need right now. So maybe he isn't the player we need for the future. But maybe, he, again, you know, we, we seem to refer back to him season after season. Maybe he is the player we need now. You know, we, do, we don't have any leadership on the pitch. Some people may question his leadership and, you know, what's happened in the past. But it was clear on Saturday that the defence was a lot better off with him in it as opposed to Lamin Kone. You know, we, we were certainly a lot better. And as I said before, I really think both goals, I don't think you can blame John O'Shea for the first one. That's James Vaughan's trying to get his head on a, on a whipped ball in the box and he's glanced it in the top corner. And the second one's a, a real piece of quality. It wasn't like we made catastrophic defensive errors like we have done in the past. As I said, he's, he, he, isn't, he isn't the future and he certainly, I wish we didn't have to rely on him. But just our sheer lack of defensive options and just the sheer disdain that Lamin Kone seems to have for everything around him at the moment. You know, his, his attitude just stinks. So would I rather have a 36-year-old John O'Shea whose legs are a bit questionable? Yes, I would over someone like Lamin Kone because I, I think his, that attitude when you're out on the pitch, I'm just thinking, and you've got Browning beside him or you got Matthews at fullback or, or whoever it would be. you got some younger players in and around him. 
yeah, they can't be looking at Lamin Kone and thinking, you know, and be inspired because it's clear the bloke doesn't want to be here. So, you know, if if we have to refer back to John O'Shea, you know, I think I think you know it's it's a it's a means to an end, you know. And if we can rely on him up to January and then try, you know, if our you know dickhead of an owner actually releases some funds, you know, if we we if we can rely on him up to up until January and try and bring someone in with a bit of experience, you know, that might be the best. Um, an only solution at the moment because we're so devoid of options. I mean, would you, what would you do? do? Do you bring in Tom Beadlem from the youngsters? Do you do you bring someone like that through? But then you, you wouldn't want to put him in him in when he doesn't have someone like John O'Shea beside him. So I, I think I think he'd be a key player this year. And I think if we can keep him fit, and maybe we'll have to rely on him up until January because you know we're, we're just so devoid of options. I think that's a valid point there you made about bringing in um, bringing in Beedling. He would require someone next to him who who sort of knows his stuff, obviously. Um, but and you're absolutely right. It is the only option. The sad thing is that he won't last until January. At best, he's got one or two good a run of one or two good performances in him, and then he crumbles just like everyone else does. Uh, back to a, a a point just before that about the managers about Allardyce relying on him as well. Um. This is something that puzzles me the most about John O'Shea. And, uh, and to be honest, West Brown before him, actually, a little bit. But John O'Shea in, spe- in, in particular, with regards to every manager relying on him, every single manager looks at him, clearly has a conversation with him, and comes away thinking, yeah, yeah, he, he'll be fine. I can put him in. People look up to him or something like But I do wonder, This is and this is speculation, obviously, I do wonder if it's not something else that's more that's less of a a respect earned through actual quality, through actual ability and and actual performances, um, or if it's something that he has, it's something that he simply possesses because he's one of the longest-serving players in the dressing room. Everybody seems to like him. He gets the skipper role straight up, and when everyone talks about him, they talk about how professional he is. And I, I, I'm just, I'm just wondering if that that concept of professionalism, it's like you say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, I want because what is professional to you is professional a player who you can rely on, who you can rely on to perform consistently, or is professional for you a player who you can give orders to, who will then distribute those orders and will follow your plan on the pitch, or at least say that he's going to follow your plan on the pitch, or is it someone who will agree with you and? tell off the younger players or the less experienced players just like you are as a manager when this goes wrong. Is it some, my point is, is he just looking busy? I feel like John O'Shea has made a career now out of just looking busy, you know, and it's, if you actually look at the statistical evidence, there's a lot of it to back that up because in actuality, since he left Manchester United and arguably before he left, he has been a subpar player. He's not the player that we should have ever gone for. You know, I, I can see why someone was fooled into taking him and he has had to... But I, I compare him, for example, to, to Kabul. Now, Kabul didn't have um, quite... Well, I suppose technically he had as almost as illustrious a career. Um, obviously, played for Tottenham. But he, he wouldn't... A lot of people wouldn't have said, oh, Kabul is as good as John O'Shea if they were foolish enough to actually like make that comparison or say that John O'Shea is good in the first place. But I think a lot of people wouldn't have relied on Kabul as much as they would rely on John O'Shea. And I think, whereas with Kabul, he had more consistent performances. Yes, he had howlers and things like that, but he had more consistent performances. And his behaviour in the dressing room and as a 
well as a leader it seemed to be based more on earned respect as i say more than something that's just given because he has the right thing to say you know john o'shea is john o'shea will probably go into management john o'shea's because he, he has that sort of mind i don't doubt that he worked out a long time ago how to speak to people in football you know, and I, I'm just, as I say, I'm not just going to sit here slating John O'Shea anymore. We'll leave it alone at that. But um, I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked if well, and why he's been running things, essentially, for the last couple of years, if that was the best we could do. And the dressing room is still awful, from all accounts. So I do I do despair. Oh, dear more, dear more. Why did you have to bring Eunice Kabul up? It's a shame, it's, isn't it? It's thoroughly depressing. Like I think, I think we can all agree that uh, we miss him, and we missed him last season, especially. Right. So we've covered defence. We will move through to the midfield, and I want to start with Lee Catamol. I have some strong opinions on Catamol, as I mentioned earlier, and I think as Sunderland fans, we appreciate hard work, graft, grit, and determination. And this love of the harder aspects of the beautiful game can sometimes cause over fan, uh, cause fans to overlook more subtle characteristics such as movement, spatial awareness and marking. And I think we're all guilty as that as Roger reporters and as Sunderland fans. And it's true that Catamol improved, yes, uh, improved against Preston, but for me it was only on the surface. His work rate would turn to normal and he showed improved desire fighting hard. However, the technical side of his game remained poor. He lost his man for the second Preston goal. His passing ability once again flattered to deceive. And <clears throat> Grayson must begin to recognise that the 31-year-old's flaws are just that flaws and he must act accordingly. Tom, what did you make of Lee Catamol's performance? It was it was improved yesterday. It definitely was. Um from from previous games, certainly. I, I remember at the beginning of last season, um, you know, Vincent Abora was was linked and everybody was really ecstatic about having this technical, athletic midfield player. And I wrote an article around about that time saying, you know, like is Lee Catamol the man that lead us forward and they got a little bit of flack saying, you know, Katz is actually, uh, he, he's sort of like a, a linchpin of this side. We need him. He's a crux, etc. And he he has a role to play within the team. I think the issue with Lee Catamol is a, is a tactical one as such. I don't think, uh, I mean, sort of the, the weaknesses you identified with regards to his passing range, his vision, and like sort of his general football and ability on the ball, it's not suited to a, a central midfielder. He needs to really sort of just sit in front of the back four and provide them cover. And we aren't setting up in a way that works for Lee Catamol. Doesn't get the best out of him. He's a sort of he's the the anchor man, the water carrier, whatever you want to call him. He's that guy who just sits right in front of the back four, shields them, wins the ball back and and, and sort of passes it off to 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 more technically gifted players. I honestly think uh, something like a light bulb just popped in my head, I'm sure he once admitted that he wasn't like a stereotypical footballer and that he was like the donkey who would put in the hard yards and the graft to win the ball back and give it to others. I'm sure there's actually an interview out there where he mentions that as a youngster. There's an interview on SAFC.com actually. He talks about his strengths uh, definitely being when the team hasn't got the ball. He loves that aspect of the yeah. game, winning it back. Uh-huh. And it's just, that's we're not utilising him in the right way. And I really, It's you know the, the same with John O'Shea, right? We need John O'Shea right now. And all we're really pointing out is that, great, like it'll help stabilise the side for now, but in the future, it's not going to work. And it's the same with Lee Catamol. We're, we're using him in a position that he isn't familiar with. We're not utilising him correctly. And we're trying to do that as a long-term approach. The lad's in his late 20s. He's played football since about 17 or 18 at a, at a, a senior level. Like it's a canny long time to be, you know, 
pounding the, the pavement, so to speak. He's one of those blokes who struggled with injuries, and now we're asking him to be this dynamic midfielder, box to box. It's not his game. And I just think <laughs> we need to be realistic here and think what's his, what are his qualities. He's tenacious. He wins the ball back and he can provide pressure. But as soon as he gets it, he doesn't really... I don't want to say he doesn't know what to do, but you know he's not as well-equipped as others. You know, So Lee Catamull, I genuinely do think he's a good player. I just think we're re- grossly misusing him in the side. Yeah, I, I would. Um, I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, there's been a lot of calls to take Catamol out. Um, very recently, though, I would say very recently, because obviously, when we came down into this league, we were sort of relying on the fact that Lee Catamol was a, a one-club man. Well, it feels like that. Um, we were relying on him as sort of like the heart and the soul of the team, essentially, and and the idea of coming into the championship was made less daunting, knowing that. We'd have, we have Lee Catamol and we'd had him and players like him for some time. So we sort of felt like this would be our, well, it would, it would, it would suit us, you know what I mean, to, to have him in this scenario. But I think apart from the injuries and things like that, it's, it's certainly not worked out that way, which is a real shame. Um, as to why it hasn't worked out that way, I agree. I agree with Tom in that the system that he's being used in really doesn't suit him. The, the role that he's being used in, moreover, doesn't suit him. He, I mean, it's questionable when he talks about how he, he most enjoys getting the ball back because he tends to lose the ball in this situation. And, and, but that is that highlights it, doesn't it? That highlights the fact that in play, he isn't that sort of... But again, it's it's disappointing that that's the case, that one of our real reliable characters, one of the few players we have that we like any Sunderland fan would be happy to have on the pitch. It's It's a bit... Yeah, it's a, it's it's a bit sad, really, in a sense, because we've that means we've got a player who, by his own admission, isn't a particularly great footballer. You know, enjoys more of his, and from what we can all see, enjoys the the rough and tumble of the game, certainly, which appeals to one part of you as a football fan, but as an actual manager, as a, as a fan that wants to see success, that wants to see creativity in the midfield, or at the very least, no liabilities, which is let's face it, is something that. Lee Catamol can be as well and has been at, at times and whether it's whether it's the fact that in fact it, you could argue that he's been a liability now for some time because it used to be that he kept getting himself sent off through sheer frustration or just an inability to tackle properly or rather an ability to tackle very severely um, then it's injuries he struggled with injuries like Tom just mentioned and now that we're playing in this system playing him in this role he loses the ball constantly it keeps happening. I was counting how many times he lost the ball. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is again. Just doing it throughout the match. And uh, is that really what we've come down to? And if you can only define one, like your players by <laughs> essentially their off-pitch behaviour, if you can then turn around and say, oh, we've got to select him. Because if we don't select him, we've got no one to rely on. Uh, if we don't select him, such and such won't know what he's doing. Like that's, that's completely the wrong angle to be coming from as a football club, as a manager. It needs to be a fo- we need to get ourselves out of this situation whereby we're relying on these these people to to perform roles off the pitch, you know, and not roles that they're necessarily good at, just roles that they're sort of shoehorned into. So yeah, for me, I'm not happy about it, and it depresses me as much as the next Sunderland fan. I don't think Lee Catamol is the is the way for us going forward anymore. 
I think Cats needs a technical midfielder with passing ability and a, a third partner with positional awareness in order to thrive in a kind of a midfield three. I don't think it's any coincidence that he performed well with Yadam Veer and Jan Kirchhoff alongside him. I think he, he needs support in there, doesn't he, really? James, do you agree with uh, the above statement? I, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think when he's got someone like Didier and Dong beside him, you know, do we? They're, two, they're both holding midfielders. Do we need to play two holding midfielders in this league? I mean, well, I guess our form in the last, say, few months actually suggests we do. But I, when you've got someone like Ndong, who's almost a bit like a younger Lee Catamon in the sense that he covers a lot of ground and he's tenacious and he gets the ball quickly, it Catamon was a lot better yesterday. But he he is then relied upon to to use the ball and set it up. You know, the the first game against Derby, for example. I, he, he grabbed that game by the scruff of the neck at times. You know, he drove us forward. He had a he had a, a really good attempt saved in the first half of that game. He he looked really imposing. And I thought after that game, you know, actually, you know, we might have a really good midfield. You know, these two together, and he just has not kicked on at all. And I don't know whether that's complacency on his part or whether that just is, you know, the downfall of Lee Catamall and you know whether technically he just isn't very. He's just not a very good footballer. You know, maybe if we if he didn't get stuck in so much and he didn't show as much passion, actually he left the club a long time ago. You know, I think without that drive and passion, he, he is a very very limited footballer. Um, but in in very much the same sense as we, when we were talking about John O'Shea previously, we have no options. Like if if we don't play him there, you you're looking at Darren Gibson who. Um, in the week was absolutely atrocious. You know, he was so lazy and he looked so cumbersome on the ball. I just think you've, you've almost, you've got to play him. You know, there's, there's no one else he can, he can put there. I mean, I guess, I guess Williams could potentially play there, but, you know, I always thought he would, he, he would be suited to, again, to be playing in a three, you know, because he had, doesn't really have that physical aspect. Um, it just again, it just shows how many how limited our options are. You know, when we have to rely on Lee Catamall and try and expect him to spray, you know, thirty, forty yard passes when you know that as that as you all said, isn't his um, strong suit, is it? You know, he's he's not that type of type of player, and without a Kershaw or an Veer or whoever it will be alongside him, it, it kind of highlights those shortcomings even more. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there, James. We'll move on to strikers now then and general attacking players. I think we can all agree that uh, Aidan McGeady's form was very impressive and I think key to our success in this division or finishing mid-table in the division, avoiding relegation, whatever whatever you want to judge success is, is keeping McGeady fit. Uh, but we had Vaughan and Lyndon Gooch starting up front um, against Preston and the pair fared kind of Half decently, I would say. Tom, what did you make of the strikers? Uh, James Vaughan is he's almost like an enigma at the minute. It's <clears throat> I appreciate the fact that he he throws himself about, he wins us free kicks, he's he's an outlet to get the ball too quickly. But uh, he he really lacks just the necessary quality to be a, a striker that we need right now. And maybe again, maybe it's we're using him in the wrong way. I mean, he scored what twenty four goals last season in League One. And I don't think he was a target man. I mean, looking through his goals when, when he signed, you know, there was some Twitter account with montage of all his goals. He wasn't sort of putting towering headers in past the keeper by any means. He was sort of on the shoulder of the last man being played in. It was very much like a poacher. 
and all of a sudden we're using them as a as a target man and it just doesn't seem to be working you know it's it's square pegs and round holes uh, again unfortunately I, I have a doubt still over whether or not he's good enough for the championship but really we can't judge accurately if he's been played somewhat out of position Gooch on the other hand I've been really impressed with actually I must admit um he came in a couple of times as a sub and kind of looked devoid of that bit of quality. But yesterday he had a real drive and him and uh, Honeyman, I know they took some flack from some people on social media, which I found a bit odd, but they were the only players who moved and passed with a purpose. And, and McGeady as well, sorry. But for such young lads, and I'm going to presume it's one of those that Simon Grayson said called everybody else soft as shite. That's just, it's brilliant. And that's one thing that genuinely fills me with a little bit of hope is these two lads, academy products, uh, I wouldn't say they're doing the business by any means, but they're, they're putting in good performances. And that's got to be something that the younger players and the under-23s, the under-18s are looking at and thinking, great, it's my chance. It's my chance now to, to grasp this with two hands. We, we mentioned Beedlin. I think there's Ethan Robson, the Reese Greenwood. There's several players down there who, you know, if they're given the chance, they need to grab it with both hands because George Honeyman and Lyndon Gooch both have. The, the link-up play between uh, Vaughan, Gooch and Honeyman in, um, for the, the first goal was, was something uh, impressive. I was, I was pleased with that. Um, and especially, really, the fact that we, we really, up until that point, looked kind of stale. And I, I had a, like an awful feeling at that point that that was down to the fact that we were we lacking confidence. And the fact that... Gooch took that ball and sort of dropped the shoulder and laid it off to Honeyman. Really showed just a, a little bit of flair, a little bit of creativity for me that we've lacked in weeks. And whether that's down to just the, the youthful exuberance of those players or if you know that's just something that they have in their locker, that was pleasing to see. So for me, the striking situation is still poor. We're essentially pinning our hopes on Lewis Grabben and Josh Madger coming back and giving us options and hoping something works to that regard. But in general, yesterday we looked somewhat effective going forward and that's certainly better than than recent weeks where we've looked uh, incredibly toothless yeah I, I mean i i wouldn't be as um glowing in my reviews of Lyndon gooch in fairness I, you know i think he does show equality at times um i think he lacks his final balls poor and i i don't think he can strike a ball you know his his ability to um to finish is is, is really poor you know, I I don't I don't think we should be you know relying on him at all. You know, I think Lyndon Gooch is someone where he doesn't really possess much pace, so I'm not too sure if he's he's suited to be out wide. You know, he's he he is quite quite neat and tidy on the ball, so I guess he could have him playing in the hole, you know, and maybe he's number ten. But I I don't personally rate him too highly. I I don't think he's that great, um, and I I think. Maybe similar with George Honeyman, you know. I I appreciate their work ethic. I appreciate the fact that, you know, they really care and there's passion there. But you know, we we've been talking this whole podcast about putting people on a pedestal because of their work rate, and actually not looking at maybe the technical um, drawbacks they have in their game. When I think both of them actually have that. You know, I don't think maybe maybe that will come. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but. For me, someone like Lyndon Gooch, I don't see him making him enough of an impact this season to get us to mid-table, to play us, whatever it will be. Or even, you know, I, I don't see Lyndon Gooch getting his even more than five goals this year. I don't see him getting that many assists either. You know, he's a player that should be limited to 
to cup appearances and, and you know if we need a bit of legs coming coming on in the second half you know soon as what more's fit he should come in um i would always play someone like McManaman ahead of him i think he's 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 a much more talented footballer his final balls a lot better he looks a hell of a lot more dangerous so for me yes you know it's great to see the youngsters coming in it's great to see them getting a chance but i don't see them as having enough quality in terms of their final ball whether it be an assist or a finish to actually have the the necessary impact at this level i think for me it would be you'd have a, a gravum down the middle and you'd have McGeady and McManum on either side of them. And once they're fully fit, that will be a front three. And then, you know, what more could, could slip in in any of those positions. But Lyndon Gooch, for me, is just like, he, he's just average. He, that's all he is. I appreciate his efforts, but in my opinion, he's just average. See, I think I've, I've been relatively impressed with with Gooch against Cardiff, the way he won the penalty. I know he didn't really do much for the rest of the game, but he won the penalty. He made himself look busy, and he had, you know, he had the bollocks to to grab the ball and and score it. So, I think that's positive. Yeah, as you say, I don't think we should be expecting too much from these guys, but they are chipping in here and there, which is good. Especially Honeyman's been, he's not having like a massive, massively impressive breakthrough season, but he's chipping in here and there. And you know he's he's working and he's he's running around for the club, which which is always good. Demo, we all know kind of what the common consensus is on James Vaughan. I'm really interested to hear about what you think about the two youngsters, Honeyman and Gooch. Well, I love Gooch, me. Everybody knows I love Gooch. The reality is that I'm I, just to to speak about Gooch in particular um, to counter what James was saying. Uh, the idea that we can't rely on him that he's you know, it's someone we shouldn't be relying on. I think that's a moot point completely because we were just discussing John O'Shea and Lee Camel, two players that we really shouldn't be relying on. I mean, there's a lot of players in our squad that we shouldn't be relying on, but everyone's going to have to step up. I mean, the idea that we're we're even considering waiting for Marjar to come back, just like what was said earlier, it's uh, that's something that was never going to be... It, it should never have been part of the plan. No one ever told us it was part of the plan. And when we discussed it originally, like, say... 20 episodes ago, 10 episodes ago, it was a case of, I mean, I know Gav's not here, but Gav would have said like, no, absolutely not. And we all sort of, it was a general consensus that Marja, he had too far to go. Same with Asoro, you know, same with Gooch, same with Honeyman, same with all of them. So I think in reality, when you consider that Gooch plays for the international US uh, men's team, doesn't he? And he's also, he actually, he scored for us. And if you watch him in that game, Last time, um, watching the game against uh, Preston, sorry, he does this awesome little turn uh, just outside their box and does two defenders, then goes past them and tries to, and like finesses a shot towards the right post. Don't get me wrong, the keeper managed to get to it. It wasn't like a stellar, a stellar shot or anything like that. But I think you have to consider that if we're going to measure all of these other players with by the fact that we've got John O'Shea and we've got. <laughs> We're giggling that. <laughs> we've got John O'Shea and we've got Lee Catamol and we've got players like that who we have to rely on even though we shouldn't. I think we should use a completely different barometer for Gooch, like the same barometer that we use with all of those players. Ideally, we wouldn't have brought him into this situation. I don't think he's average, though. That's all I was... I'm, I don't want to wax lyrical about him, like, for the entire thing. But in I, I don't think he's the sort of player that we shouldn't be considering because he's industrious He's got power. He's got attitude. 
and he does actually have some dribbling technique and um, a good shot on him. Do you, do you think that? Do you think that actually sets him out as anything more than an average footballer, though? Like Callum McManaman and Ada McGee have already proven, I think, that they've got that quality needed to to, to make the difference. They're they're and I, a lot of people would say they're average footballers. You know, like so. Yeah, yeah. Where is Lyndon Gooch on that? Well, this is what I'm saying. Well, in reality, we, we won't always play McManaman and McGeady. McGeady's just only come off the treatment table, hasn't he, for a start. Um, there's nothing to say that he won't be back on it again. In fact, if the records of all of the players we brought in are anything to go by, they're all injury-prone. So, <laughs> considering that Gooch isn't injury-prone, I'm, I'm not saying... I agree with you. I'm not saying that he's, he's a fantastic player. But when you say average, it's like the barometer that you use for it should be... Not against McGeady, because no one's saying that Gooch should be playing instead of McGeady. No one said that. The manager hasn't said it. We aren't saying it. But the idea that we can't bring him on to change a game or to impact a game, I just disagree with. I think he has the ability to impact on a game. And he certainly has the attitude to do it. But as for, what was the other one? Honeyman. Yeah, Honeyman. Great player. Fantastic player. I wonder if it was him that called everyone soft as shite. I don't know. But that's a fantastic way to prove it, you know, to go and play that game and then bang the goal in and the way he didn't celebrate as well. He, he sort of half celebrated. It seemed like he was just angry. He just wanted to make his point. He wanted to show everyone that he was capable of being there, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not aware of any particular love between George Honeyman and Preston North End. So there's not, there's not many reasons for him to not celebrate a goal. When you consider that he's, well, he's, he's been with us for a long time and he's performing well, he's rightly chuffed or he should be chuffed to be in the first team but it just goes to show that he's emotionally invested I like that I, I really I really like that about him and that's something we can all appreciate that's something that we're missing a lot of and that's something I think that perhaps is seen in Gooch as well perhaps not to that extent yet but as I say he's already, as I mentioned earlier he's already scored for us and he looked like he could have scored yesterday as well so I think the pair of them I think something that we should rely on is our youth team um, it's interesting to note that since these players have been in our team training with our team. Our under 23s have taken a battering. Uh, they aren't, they aren't considering how well they did last season. They they seem to be suffering for these players not being there anymore. Um, I think that's a testament to them as well. So while it's not the, the baptism by fire that I would have given Honeyman or Gooch, I think they can, we can still find something in them, you know, in this season. I think they've got plenty of time to, prove any detractors wrong and they've certainly done more to endear themselves to the fans this season than most of the players in the squad I apologise wholeheartedly for laughing halfway through um, sorry man you, you, you comment, you comment times, Demo, it, it was the Gooch and the, and the pronunciation of Marjar that, that just really got me <laughs> I, I can't help it everyone calls him something else but I call him Marjar Marjar <laughs> it, just, it just got me I, I do what is it then what is it I think Marja. it's Marjar isn't it yeah is it Madger? Because Madger would imply a D, wouldn't it? Would it be Madger? Yeah, you know. Let's not get into it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so, so to get to get back to reality, and still, still on the subject of Madger, really, Tom, I know you have some thoughts on the uh, on the attacking options we've got. Do you think that Gucci and Vaughan did well, or would you like? Oh well, well what do you think of of Honeyman and McGeady as well? What are your general thoughts on Sunderland's attack? Just to go back to the idea of Honeyman, like I'm sorry, but. I know Jim was saying just there that, you know, pretty average player. Him and Linden were the only two players yesterday who looked to pass forward with a purpose for me. 
everybody else was sideways, backwards, losing the ball. And there was a moment, I think it was probably like the 50th minute where they had the ball and they were on like the left-hand side of the pitch and they just sort of ran rings around Preston for a good two or three minutes. But nobody else was moving. So it was like we had these two young lads really trying to get some impetus going, and get a little bit of momentum. And everybody around was standing still. It was infuriating to watch. In terms of attack, I think um, we don't really... Sort of Grayson keeps it close to his chest, but we don't really know much about uh, the extent of Graben's injury. Um, is Watmore going to be the kind of striker to come in and sort of bang a series of goals in and get us on the right track? Still not sure. I think if you look at just sort of general form this season and sort of who had the most attacking intent in pre-season, as soon as Majo, Majo, Magician, whatever you want to call him, as soon as he comes back, I think you've got to give him a chance. Um, he would look absolutely clinical in pre-season. He was, he was fantastic at times. And I genuinely think that's the sort of player we're missing. Somebody who operates sort of in and around the opposition's area. I mean, I didn't see James Vaughan actively getting positions, sort of attacking positions in the opposition areas yesterday. Um, the, the one time he sort of, it worked for the goal was when he sort of came and met the ball. But as, as an out-and-out striker, I would expect him to be in a lot more attacking positions. And I suppose it speaks volumes that the, the first goal he scored, six-yard box, edge of the six-yard box, right place, right time. I just think his confidence is shot and he's not getting in the right positions. Personally, um, the the strikers we need, if, if Watmore can prove himself, I think he will be the sort of best option we have. Uh, just he has more experience than the other younger lads. He's a little bit quicker. He's a little bit sharper. Um, he has a good head on his shoulders. I think he, if he can sort of prove his fitness and his value and can score, he'll be he'll be great in this league. And uh, other than that, we're, we're back to this sort of square root of all our problems and that we're thrown into a real shitty situation. And the best we have right now is is Lyndon Gooch and James Vaughan. And yeah. they're going to fire us up the table. Who knows? <laughs> Unfortunately, we've we've sort of got to roll the dice at this point. Um, the jury's still out on everybody in terms of attack. We're realistically going to be really relying on the creativity and flair of McManaman, who's missed some games through injury already, and uh, Aidan McGeady. And if those two lads don't sort of get us up and, and go on, so to speak, I think we'll really struggle this season, unfortunately. I'll, I'd completely agree with that, actually. Again, you, you, there's nothing to disagree with, is there? The, that's the fact. I mean, we we've been talking about or I've been talking at least about how we shouldn't have to rely on this, we shouldn't have to rely on that. But the truth is that it's it's the way things are now. We, we don't have any more opportunities to reinforce until January. We've got what we've got. Even in January, nothing's written in stone, certainly no funding or anything like that. As Sunderland fans now, we literally live day to day, week to week. I suppose in that aspect, when you look at things like that, when you look at the match like that and the draw, uh, the performances, individual performances of players and people coming back from injuries and things like that. There's actually a lot to be positive about, to be honest with you. If, you, if you're being positive, then, yeah, that's, that's the way to look at it. If you're an optimist um, and you look at everything just, I don't know, with its own sort of, yeah, with its own credibility. Uh, but in general, it is still shit to be a Sunderland fan. Right, and now we have a special treat for you listeners. We have Andrew Heard here from the newly set up organisation Red and White Army. Uh, now, first on the agenda was to hear from the fans with some 
of the more pertinent questions for the Red and White Army. So without further ado, I'll fire some of these at you and hopefully you can give a good account of yourself. What do you say, Andrew? Yeah, that, that, that's fine. Fire away. Yeah. Good stuff. Right, why don't you start by telling us who the Red and White Army are and what you plan to achieve? So, the, the Red and White Army, um, we are a, a democratic, inclusive and independent supporters group, um, which ultimately we're wanting to give a, a voice to all Sunderland supporters. Um, what we're looking to do is enter into structured dialogue with the football club, um, with the goal of strengthening the relationship between the, the club and supporters. I think, um, as a lot of us are, are aware at the minute, um, there is... Uh, we're essentially kept in the dark. Um, there's, a, there's an air of apathy amongst supporters. You can say that with attendances falling. And I, I ultimately think that the, uh, the, the club probably needs to be doing a, a little bit more in terms of getting their message out to supporters. So what we're looking to do is obviously get members, um, which, to be fair, we're, we've been launched for uh, 10 days now, and we've already got an excess of 2,000 members on board. Um, so there's an appetite there for supporters to be, to be given a voice for the, for the club to listen. Um, so ultimately what we're looking to do is, as I say, engage in structured dialogue with the club. Um, the, the main aim is to be of the benefit of supporters, but the club can really get something out of this as well in terms of um, canvassing support um, and, and trying to rebuild bridges that have, have been burnt over recent years through the lack of interaction with supporters. Very good, so, very good. So what you say, 2,000 members in 10 days as well, like that, that must be quite hard to organise logistically and bureaucratically. Why don't you tell us about how you're going to manage that? In, in terms of uh, managing membership, the way things have gone so far is obviously we're, we're out on social media platforms. We've been getting the messages out through Twitter, um, through Instagram, through Facebook. We've got a, a, a website presence as well. Going forward with this, ultimately, what we're looking to do, as I say, is give a voice to the supporters. Um, we're looking for fans to, to engage with us. We're going to have a dedicated point of contact, uh, an, an email address, so supporters can um, raise any pertinent comments or concerns that they'd like us to, to flag up for discussion through the, um, through the email point of contact. On the back of that, the way it's going to be working is... Um, those comments and those points, there's going to be a lot of common themes running through them. Um, certainly, the, there's quite a few particular issues um, with regards to football club at the minute. So there may well be a lot of supporters who will have a similar sort of theme with their comments. Those themes are, are then going to make up pretty much the agendas of the, the open meetings going forward. So there'll be there'll be chance to discuss those points within the open meetings. We can vote on them because we are a democratic organisation. Ultimately, um, everybody's allowed their say everyone's allowed to, to discuss things and yeah 2,000 members is a lot and we're, we're expecting those numbers to grow certainly um, we've got our first open meeting coming up on Tuesday and we're expecting membership to grow from there as well so it's a case of managing the, the social media platforms having the points of contact for people and, and being as transparent as possible as well in terms of you know if, if somebody's making some real valid comments then we have to discuss those as well so going forwards you know we're, we're expecting this group to, to be around for a number of years. We've got really good foundations set in place at the minute in terms of how we handle membership, how we deal with our members, how we give a voice to our members. So, yeah, 2,000 is a lot, but we're expecting a hell of a lot more to come as well. Um, and we do have the good foundations in place to, to make sure we're, we're taking on board everyone's comments and everyone's points. So, yeah, watch the space, um, as I say, after Tuesday's opening meeting. Tuesday's opening meeting is where the Peacock, is it? Yeah, it's it's at the Peacock in, in the town centre, formerly the London Londonderry. Um, the meeting is starting at half six. But we do actually have 
quite a few numbers already signed up at the minute. Um, so what we're looking for, for members to do is um, basically have an expression of interest by registering their interest um, in terms of attending the meeting. I think we're already at something like 75% capacity of the venue. So what we're looking for fans to do, there, there are links on our social media platforms for supporters to, to register their interest. For those supporters who don't have access to social media as well, um, there will be opportunities to sign up as a member on the night and then that will uh, allow you entrance to the meeting as well. So, yeah, it's um, it's a very busy time at the minute, but as I said, membership is growing, it's increasing. I can only see this thing getting bigger as we as we start to engage with the club. I love the... Honestly, I love the idea of it all. I think it's fantastic. It's it's something we've needed for a while. Yep, thank you. Um, I've seen, like, on, like, a just sort of generic social media discussions and, and sort of questions that keep popping up as I've been yep. doing some research and reading it, there's sort of a few people just, you know, throwing the question out there, what's the point? And um, I just think it would be, like, a great opportunity now to sort of vocalise, you know, why this is important and... What is it that, you know, people who might be naysayers or humming and hawing, what is it that, if you could give them a message right now, what would you say to them about the importance of this? Well, what I'd say to supporters, um, the, I'd say that there has been a, a breakdown in, in trust and dialogue between supporters and the club for, for a number of years now. Um, there's not as much transparency as there, there possibly could be. Um, and I, I think that there is a general fan perception at the minute. It's either apathy, but people aren't necessarily that bothered about what's going on or there's a lot of frustration from supporters you, you, it seems to be you're either in one camp or another the point of this organisation is to, to help build bridges with the club but at the same time it, it's also there to, to, to empower supporters um, so yeah people might be quite sceptical about you know what's the point of this organisation are the club only just going to pay lip service to us our group, our committee and, and our, our staff in the background there's a lot of experience. When we actually put together the, the Red and White Army, we approached the Football Supporters Federation. They're a, a national organisation. They're essentially a, a supporters union. And they're based in Sunderland, they're based in Ashbrook. Um, and they do a hell of a lot of good work. Um, from a Sunderland perspective, they've been involved with the, the bubble trip discussions um, that took place a couple of years ago. And they campaign for the 20s plenty in terms of tickets. So that there's a lot of experience in that organisation. And our policy coordinator, Dave Rose, he, he works for the FSF. He, he was fully on board and, and wanted to get involved with this. So we, we have a lot of expertise on how to, to enter into a good discussion with the club and how to solve certain problems that supporters may have as well. So looking at what is the point of this group, what, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve a, a strengthening of relationship between the fans and the club. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I would say personally speaking, fans have been kept in the dark a little bit over the last few years. When Martin Bain, CEO, came on board, um, you know, it started off with a bit of positivity. It started off with the, the whole Lamine Corner situation. Pops up, in, pops up in Liverpool, potential transfer to Everton. And the club came out, put a statement out and said, nah, he's not going anywhere. And you thought, that's, an, that's good. That's a clear message coming from the club. January transfer window. Martin Bain comes out again and says, you know what, we're going, to have to, we're going to have to sell players to buy players. And it's not the message we wanted to hear, but you, the fans were kept in the loop. You thought, okay, this is, this is all right. And then from that point onwards to the Bournemouth game when we were relegated, very little came out of the club. And that was a real uncertain time. And uncertainty leads to, you know, as I say, apathy or frustration. And, and that's the point where we're at now is that you know, we're probably at, at an all-time low. In, in in my personal view, like I've I've been going to, I've had a season ticket over twenty years now. This is probably one of the lowest points we've ever been at. 
And what we need to do is is give the fans a voice. The club needs to be listening to supporters. And, and the Red and White Army is, is that framework, it's that mechanism for supporters to, to actually have their say and for the club to listen. And as I say, not just to pay lip service, not just to, to appease us with a few nice statements here and there. We want, a, we want to set up a structured dialogue that we can take forward for years to come. It doesn't matter who the owner is, but it's having that dialogue in place and it's having that structure in place where fans will be recognised um, and, and the club will listen to us and actually act upon what, what fans have got to say. I also, I completely, I'm 100% behind this. I think it's a fantastic idea. Certainly one of the key problems that we've had over the years has been engagement with fans. Um, it's something that the club really needs to work on. There have been efforts to do so, I suppose, but none quite so organised, none with quite so much momentum and none encompassing so many groups that um, they are involved with with the club in general on day to day. One question we do have, though, another question is, like you, you, you talk about creating this dialogue, setting up a, a dialogue with the club. Um, hopefully they'll be receptive to it and it'll yep. be for years to come. Um, it's been said, obviously, there, are, there have been clubs that have done this before. I mean, the... Uh, the SLG, the Support Liaison Group, that's technically their remit. How how do you feel mm. the, uh, the Red and White Army, how do you feel it differs from these groups that have come before it? Yeah, first and foremost, uh, I've got to say the, the existing groups, they do they do a hell of a job um, in terms of engaging with the club. Um, and they, they do a very good job at the same time. Like The, the, the guys, I've, I've, um, I've had exposure to the SLG and... There's, there's decades of, of knowledge and, and support within that group that have to rec- we have to recognise. Um, the way in which the Red and White Army differs from the SLG is that we, we have a, a lot more of a wider audience. Um, as I say, we've got 2,000 members signed up in, in the space of 10 days. We have social media and website platforms to, to actually get messages out to fans. Um, we, we can reach a, a larger audience than, than the SLG can do um, as well. We are we're, we're a very inclusive group. Um, we recognise the the diversity amongst our fans. And one thing I, I must say, we we've got um, an LGBTQ representative on board as well. Um, a, a Sunderland supporter approached us because we we do have co-opted positions. Um, we have um, representatives from all of the fanzines. We have representatives um, from the the branch liaison council. But we've we've also got an LGBTQ rep on board as well, which is um, you know the the club have been looking to to go down that path and, and get representation from the LGBTQ community. And we've actually had somebody come forward in in ten days of being live since launch, and they, they put the name into the hat and said, you know what, I'd like to be the representative. I'd like to to provide a voice um, and be a representative for for that community as some supporters as well. So not only can we reach a, a, a wider audience and, and allow more people a voice, we, we have a, a wide-ranging, diverse group of representatives as well. You've requested a meeting with, uh, with Martin Bain and Ellis Short. Are you hopeful that you can open a dialogue immediately? Um, obviously, the, the, the letter went out yesterday. Whether we can get something in place immediately, I'm not sure. I think the, the club may well be a bit sceptical of the Red and White Army as well. I don't think they've, they've actually faced a, a supporters organisation that is as, as organised with the momentum behind us that we've got as well. So I, I think, you know, if I were the club um, outwards looking into the Red and White Army, they may be a bit wary about what we're bringing to the table and, and what we're looking to achieve. Um, what I, w- I would say is that um, although the, the main aim of the Red and White Army is to strengthen relationships between the club and, and the, the fans to, to the benefit of the supporters, 
but the club can really take benefits out of this as well. The, our, our supporters are, are very, very knowledgeable. Um, our supporters know the score. If they're raising things to the Red and White Army, um, we can then pass those on to the club as well. So the club might not be aware of certain issues that are going on. The club might not be aware of um, fan perception or, or certain failings. Obviously, we can all say that attendances are dropping at the current time. But whether the club are aware of particular issues, um, we're, we're not too sure. Where the, the Red Might Army comes along, we give a voice for the supporters. Um, we can really help the club out as well. So I'd like to think that the CEO, the owner, they will be willing to engage with us um, because we are bringing something new to the table that nobody's really brought forward before. Andrew, thank you for coming on. It's a, a really, really good project. And thank you for thank you for taking the time out of your day. No, it's, it's quite all right. I'd say anybody listening who isn't already signed up to be a member, um, you can do so on redandwhitearmy.co.uk. Um, you can also follow us on, as I say, social media platforms. And if you, you don't have access to social media platforms, get yourself along to the meeting on Tuesday night at half six at the Peacock. Um, and you can sign up and become a member there. Superb. Thank you very much. It's great. Thank you. Demo, I know you wanted to kind of surmise what Andrew had to say about the new fan project, Red and White Army. What are your thoughts? Well, I just wanted to approach any kind of, well, rather broad, any sort of subject of negativity and things like that. I think it's easy to be disillusioned. We're all disenchanted as Sunderland fans and we're certainly disconnected from the club. Um, so it can be really, really challenging. And it makes a sceptic of us all, me more than most, I think. Well, I'm not the only one. We are all sceptical. We are all cynical. Um, so it's really easy to dismiss anything. It's really easy to dismiss the idea that fans can work towards something uh, that isn't as simple as, you know, fans have this idea that we can just, that well, some fans have the idea that fans are capable of just toppling owners and changing regimes and that all we need to do is protest outside the stadium of light or get the bed sheets out and things like that. And while, while there are certainly certain benefits to tactics like that in certain scenarios. I don't think this is one of them. I don't think, and I think as Andrew covered as well, like the idea that this is all set, it's all being set in place so that we can have a rapport essentially so that we can build a dialogue so that regardless of the regime that's there now, even if it's gone in six months or six years, then this will all stay in place and, Hopefully, every more bases will be covered. More people. I just, I, yeah, that was it. Really, I don't, I don't want anyone to look at it too negatively. Because just trust me, coming from one of the biggest cynics you'll ever hear from, like I have my own doubts about its success and things like that. But we won't know until we try. I mean, this being a Sunderland fan's nothing if it's not all about optimism, surely, and and gallows humour. So I think anyone that stands up, anyone that makes an effort, be it this group or any other group or anyone who's come before them anyone that comes after them. I think they deserve our respect. They certainly deserve to be given the benefit of the doubt. So, yeah, that's what I'd say about it. I would agree with you there, Demo. I think they deserve our respect and our involvement as well. I think it's all very well and good, you know, complaining all the time, but when an opportunity presents itself to actually try and enact change at least, then I think that's a positive thing for everybody. So, Sunderland are next in action against Queen's Park Rangers on the 14th of October. Duncan Watmore may be in contention to start. Who knows? Tom, what do you make? Or can you do a little preview of the QPR game? How do you think the lads will fare? We need a win, really, don't we? We do need a win, mate. We're back at home. Um, we've really got to, to get something out of this. We've got to make sure that we're, we're on the top of our game and we come away with three points, really. Um, you mentioned Watmore. We've got two weeks now to figure out where we're going to play him. 
uh, where how we're going to alter our game to include him. We've got two weeks to get players fit. We've got two weeks to really sort of, you know, just, just get this team together with the the new additions we brought in at the last minute. We can really sort of gel in, gel them into the team, and we we desperately, desperately, desperately need a win against QPR. They've had indifferent form, sort of languishing in the table, not doing particularly well. Had some good results, beat Hull two on the other week, but then you know, also being uh, hammered in a few games this season. They're sort of they're a mixed bag collectively, and I just think. Sunderland need uh, to show in that game that they know how they want to play now. It's, it's been too long whereby we've sort of fluttered around. We've tried five at the back. We've tried three at the back. We've tried four at the back. We've had a two-man midfield. I really think we need to come out and have a performance that that sort of highlights where where we're effective. And for me, that involves um, that involves sort of dropping James Vaughan from the side, personally. I think we should really give Duncan Watmore the chance to prove his worth up front. It's two weeks to work on his fitness to get him as the striker. And I would love to see McManaman and McGeady on either flank. That as a front three, I think, is going to be incredibly difficult for most championship sides to combat. And then I would like to see a three-man midfield. Um, who who makes up that three-man midfield, I don't know. But if Catamull's in it, I'd like to see him drop a lot deeper. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, just cover the back four. But this is a great opportunity when we come back to build on what for the players yesterday really would have been a positive performance for them. They didn't crumble. They were able to score two goals, both very good goals. And despite a moment of quality and an unfortunate own goal, we could have came away from the, the, the side that were fourth in the league yesterday with three points. So the lads won't be discouraged from that. I think Simon Grayson has a little bit of breathing space right now. If we can come away with a, a good result against QPR, it could be the start of I'm not going to say a run for the, the playoffs or anything by any means, but it, it could be a, a run of games whereby we're able to get a solid amount of points on the board, not have to look over our shoulder and sort of plan for the future. That's my two cents on it all. Very quickly, Tom, what's your scoreline prediction for QBR? I actually think um, it'll be a close game, but I think we'll, we'll win 2-1. I think our defensive frailties won't be fixed this season, and that's going to be something we'll suffer with indefinitely, essentially. Um, but I do think with the likes of McGeady, McManaman, Watmore, um, Meyer if he's back, still got James Vaughan as an option, grabbing if he's back. We have some real good quality as well as the young lads, uh, Guchin, Honeyman, who I think will play uh, a, a big role in that game as well. Um, I think we can we can win 2-1 would be my guess, maybe three at a push. You've made me feel all optimistic. Damo, what do you think? Do you think QBR could, could represent a potential turning point for the lads? Can we get the win? Oh, I don't know. I don't, it's it's uh, anything can happen at this point. I think um, we could. I mean, if we see a similar performance to what we saw in the first half, if somehow during this break they can they can work on it on the training ground. Because I think something that Simon Grayson said a lot about was that he doesn't have enough time with them. He hasn't had enough time to work with them on the training ground. Hopefully, that's all he needs. Hopefully, and and as I say, if we can produce a more consistent performance similar to the first half against Preston, um, with more individual strength. Obviously, we've got Duncan Watmore coming back in. Um, he looked a bit off the pace, but he would be, you know what I mean, coming back from such a bad knee injury um, and mentally slightly off the pace as well. He got in the way of that um, that last chance header from McGeady that looked like he was going straight in, frankly. If he'd gotten his head to it, it was almost an open goal. But Watmore jumped in and clipped it away because he didn't, wasn't aware of his teammate bearing down on him. Um, so, for, with regards to things like that, I think he needs the time. 
um, with the first team to basically just sharpen his sharpen himself up. And the same can be said for all of them. So I think, yeah, if we can bring our A game, we can do it. But whether we're actually capable of bringing that or not, I, I don't know. That's that's entirely in the hands of a higher power than us, I believe. Put your neck on the line, Demo. What do you reckon the score will be? Uh, 3-1 QPR. 3-1 QPR, so we'll have both oh, ends Jesus of the spectrum Christ. here. Dear me. <laughs> that's yeah. how I feel, man. That's how I feel. Back to earth with a bang there. And uh, thank you to Andrew Hurd from the Red and White Army for coming in to speak to us tonight. Uh, we've had Demo on the show tonight. Thank you very much to you, Tom and James. I've been your host, Copley. Uh, we are on Acast. We are on Twitter. We are on iTunes. And we will be joining you after the QPR game. And hopefully we are celebrating the second win of the season. Thank you very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.